0: And welcome to the scriptures are real podcast this is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us because that helps us draw more power from the scriptures and uh, apply them more to our lives and we surely need that today i'm your host carrie Mielstein, and i am so happy to have back with us uh, one of the very first guests that we had uh, who is so fantastic in so many ways and such a dear friend uh, my friend andrew skinner who was uh, the department chair, uh, of ancient scripture back when I was, uh, uh, teaching adjunct. And then the Dean, uh, he was just exiting as Dean. Actually, I, I was his last hiring interview as he was exiting of Dean of our college. And then he went over to head the Maxwell Institute and all of that's great. But, uh, but what's more important is what a fantastic person and friend he is. I always loved, uh, and I hope, uh, I, I usually call you Andy. I don't know if that's all right on the uh, on here. Of yeah. Uh, but I, I, I've always loved Andy, but, uh, we had the chance to teach together in Jerusalem and, uh, I, I knew he was a great scholar and a great, uh, administrator and writer. He's a very pro- a prolific writer, but, um, uh, that's when I learned what a great person and, and teacher he is. And, uh, I learned, uh, I thought I knew a lot about the area and the history, and I, I learned how much I didn't, uh, well, I didn't know then, I know, know more now because I was with him, but I also learned how to be a, a gentleman while you're a scholar and a, and a good, uh, kind friend. So welcome, Andy. Good to have you back with us.
1: Well, thank you, Kerry. It is really a pleasure and a privilege at this stage of my life to to be associated with you continually. And uh, I do remember uh, bouncing along the dusty roads of the Holy Land and talking about uh, everything from the invasion of the Assyrians to uh, very personal things about how we can best help our children. And that's uh, that's been a source of strength and a source of happiness for me. So thank you. Uh, My Uh, pleasure.
0: You kind of just
1: reminded me of what that bouncing along dusty
0: roads, we won't uh, tell too much this story, but when we hired a guy to take us out to some places, you needed a four wheel drive vehicle to get to. And then, (laughs) <laughs> when traffic was stuck somewhere and he decided he'd just get on the dirt road and go 70 miles an hour to get around the traffic that was a crazy oh night. i do remember <laughs> that
1: I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I i wouldn't say we exactly took our life in our hands but it was pretty close therefore <laughs> yeah
0: we we took our life in his hands but yeah yeah you know.
1: yeah well those, tell us a little bit about yourself guns. yeah they were yeah they really were yeah huh yeah, now I won't. Uh, I won't be able to quit thinking about uh, those wonderful things that we did. Yeah, uh, wonderful. Now that they're over, uh, <laughs> a little hair raising when we were actually doing them. But uh, yeah, yeah, great, great times and great experiences. And uh, and and I guess that's a a great lead into uh, our discussion today uh, because we're focused on. The Holy Land from the north to the south, when we start talking about uh, King Ahaz and his successor, his son, King Hezekiah, and Hezekiah's successor, uh, Manasseh. Uh, So we have uh, King Hezekiah, one of the most righteous of the very few righteous kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, sandwiched in between a couple of the very most wicked kings in the southern kingdom of Judah <clears throat> and and of course in the northern kingdom of judah we don't have any righteous king so uh th- this is a this is a very interesting period of israelite history and lots of lessons to to teach us as you mentioned uh, uh, i think we all believe i know that uh, you have preached this for many many years that the scriptures ought to be likened to our own situation and we yeah. do find that opportunity here when we start talking about uh about these kings. So if it's okay, I'd like to set the stage by providing just a very little bit of uh, background information. Uh please it takes too. us back to the 10th, 10th century BC. <clears throat> I think we uh, all know that King <clears throat> excuse me, King Solomon Shlomo uh reigned for part of his reign in righteousness and then he uh, went off the rails a little bit, but when he When he dies in roughly 922 BC, uh, the kingdom is intact. The 12 tribes are still uh, a community, if you will. They're they're still uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, But uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam inherited the reign and uh, Rehoboam Uh, was not such a a great leader in terms of paying attention to the political realities surrounding him. Um, he, uh, He ruled oppressively. He begins to rule from the very start oppressively. He does not pay attention to requests to perhaps change up policies to make life a little easier for the United Tribes. And so the old rivalries that had been in existence for For decades, if not centuries, uh, up here, they come to a head. The rivalry, especially between Judah and Ephraim, the two tribes of leadership in the kingdom of Israel.
0: Those are just natural fault lines. That that tribal division is a natural fault line among the Israelites.
1: They are. And, uh, you know, uh, Solomon tried to do some things to to redistrict or realign um, the, the kingdom so that those natural fault lines wouldn't be so prominent. Uh, and for a while, those uh, those divisions, those rivalries were suppressed. But when Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over, then they come to the fore again. And uh, as a result, the Rehoboam's <clears throat> listening to his old cronies and deciding to not only keep uh, some of the policies, political um, guidelines that have been put in place by his father, but to increase the oppressiveness of his rule, sort of a natural leader in the north uh, is able to uh, assert his natural leadership and natural authority. We're talking about uh, Jeroboam, and uh, he rallies uh, the 10 northern tribes around him. And, as a result, uh, the split that uh, we recognize was made permanent. So we have roughly ten tribes to the north who are known as the Kingdom of Israel, and the southern tribes known as the Kingdom of Judah. And of course, uh, the challenge is is that the kingdom of Judah centered in Jerusalem, has the temple. and uh, what what do you do if you're Jeroboam and the leader of the northern tribes and i think what you would do if you were not inclined to spiritual things is do exactly what he did and he set up two uh can we say alternate worship centers yeah uh, at the uh, roughly at the northern border of his kingdom and the southern border of his kingdom so we're talking about uh Bethel uh and uh and we're talking about um dan dan and so uh, dan to bethel becomes the territory that he rules over and he he solidifies uh here the i guess what you would call the religious slash spiritual um credentials for his reign by setting up these two alternate worship centers and ironically enough he does it by setting up golden calves yeah or calves it is that, ironic <laughs> yeah that t- harks back to the very thing that caused uh, uh, israel its greatest uh, problems its greatest uh, act of apostasy in the days of moses when you know a, a, a golden calf was uh, was created man it even
0: uses the same language He says that behold your gods have brought you out of egypt the exact same thing that aaron had said so it, yeah. it is there, there's a a, a you just have to wonder. Anyway, yeah, uh, it, it's it's not wise. And yet there must be something more going on there than we realize. And I've speculated about that in the past, but I really, yeah, I, 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 I want to talk to Jeroboam one, one thing
1: I, Yeah, I, one thing that I do have to give credit to Jeroboam for is his astuteness. Y- using the, as you say, the exact same language, only using it in a completely different context to yeah. support. Uh, his his, uh, uh, yeah. His ways of apostasy, I guess. So
0: he he's politically astute, but religiously foolish, I would say. Uh,
1: and and I might even add, religiously bankrupt. Yes, uh, yes. And so and so we then have that uh, we then have the two kingdoms, that are rivals of each other. But um, more than that, even with the division, of the United Kingdom. Uh, both kingdoms are open to uh, to be preyed upon by the surrounding empires, and uh, lurking in um, in the wings, can we say, is the growing empire of the Assyrians, and uh, and so from 922 roughly 922 BC to 722, we find the northern kingdom battling different entities until finally. Uh, the attention of the Syrians moves from the east, the peoples of the east, they conquer them to add to their empire. And now they turn their gaze to the west and uh, directly in their sights is the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And so uh, we we know from uh, historical records that uh, with, with the decline a severe decline in um, religiosity, true religion in the northern kingdom. Uh, the ten tribes are really in trouble because they don't have the Lord's help, and they needed the Lord's help to defend themselves against the Assyrians. So, uh, who is it? It's King uh, Shalmaneser,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, one of the Assyrian kings, who is uh, then launches this attack uh, on the southern kingdom. Uh, excuse or me. The on, northern, on, the nor- yeah. on the northern kingdom. Yeah. The first um,
0: attack, I think, comes with Tiglath Pileser uh, the third, and and the first uh, kind of scattering. But the the devastating one that will end is launched by uh, Shalmaneser that will end the kingdom. So.
1: Yeah, and uh, Shalmaneser um, follows in the footsteps of uh, Tiglath Pileser, but Tiglath Pileser, uh, roughly 745 BC, while well, he is known for solidifying the empire and bringing yeah. together all of the, the the conquered uh, groups of people it's really his predecessor a king by the name of Ashurnasirpal, who first reaches the mediterranean from you know the lands yeah. of the assyrians in that uh, in his march to establish the west as part of his empire and I think uh, historians now agree that uh, Asher Nasserpal, roughly, um, what, 883, somewhere along there to, to 859, uh, is the first to use the policies of mass deportation and terror as regular instruments of, of his military conquest. And uh, by terror, I mean very specifically the purposeful um, application of violence and unnatural force against unarmed citizens for political purposes. I think that's a safe definition of terror. And so it's Asher Nasrallah who employs this tactic, but uh, also employs the tactic of taking uh, groups of people and removing them from their natural lands, carting them off to foreign lands, and then uh, putting foreigners in the place of these deported peoples.
0: Which really yeah. will help the, reduce the nationalistic tendencies, right? So Absolutely. That's his goal. Uh,
1: it, uh, a way to say this might be when you lose your homeland, you it takes the wind out of your sails and you have much less desire to revolt or to fight against those oppressors. And that's exactly what happens. So Tiglath-Pileser comes along and he he solidifies, if you will, um, what will be what is now known as the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and, And the reason that that this is significant is precisely because of the policies that are employed by this time, policies of terror employed by the by the Assyrians, that in some cases cause uh, foreign peoples to simply give up and open their gates, if you will, yeah. rather than have to face the, the might and the terror of the Assyrian armies. Uh, in modern language, we might call it psychological operations. Psyops, is yeah. my military friends tell me, is a, is a valid um, way to you know to employ uh, your armies for political purposes it it scares the heck out of people and so some some of them simply give up and and the reason that they they give up without a fight is precisely because what the Assyrians have done in the past is uh is horrible it's um some of the some of the most uh, brutal and terrorizing acts in ancient times were carried out by the Assyrians
0: yeah they, they would uh come to a city with the the people they'd conquered from the last city they conquered and outside the new city's walls, they would impale people. They would flay flay them alive. Well, they don't live through the whole process, but uh, they would um, cut their hands off all sorts of things so that the people inside would know this is what's going to happen to you if you resist. And, and sometimes it worked where the people gave up.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Uh, I remember reading accounts um, from certain Assyrian chieftains, certain Assyrian kings, in fact, talking about this very thing, flailing uh, conquered chiefs to death, covering the walls of conquered cities with the skins of the captured populace, impaling victims on sharp poles. And then, as you say, you know, cutting off various parts of the body, ears, noses, fingers, legs and so on. Uh, one Assyrian king, I have this in my scriptural notes, one Assyrian king boasted of punishing group of rebels by, quote, tearing out their tongues, mashing them alive, and feeding their corpses to the pigs and the vultures, unquote. Well, if I know that I'm in the sights of the Assyrians, uh, there's a good chance that I'm going to give up uh, before uh, the Assyrians ever knock on my city gates. Yeah. And And that kind of sets the stage then for uh, what happens uh, to the the northern kingdom. They are conquered uh, in 722 slash 721 BC. Most of the heavy lifting is done by, I think, Shalmaneser. And then Mm. his successor, Sargon II, completes the siege of uh, the northern kingdom. And they fall under um, the, you know, the the rule of these of these uh, really <laughs> terror terrorizing armies of the Assyrians, and are carted off, and they become known as the Ten Lost Tribes. Yep, uh, lost, I suppose, to the biblical writers, not lost to the Lord, or or even to uh, his prophets. Uh, but as a result of that, then the Assyrians turn their attention to the southern kingdom of Judah, and the southern kingdom of Judah is able to uh, resist uh, the, the military attacks of the Assyrians uh, until the death of Sargon II, and he succeeded by a very famous Assyrian king called Sennacherib, and Sennacherib then Um, directs his sights directly to Jerusalem, the capital of the Southern kingdom with its uh, treasures, uh, some of which are kept in the, in the temple treasury, some of which are actually uh, kept in the temple itself. And so Uh,
0: I I think that, uh, and I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's, uh, and we can't get into the details of it. uh, We need to stay at this kind of bird's eye view like you're doing, but that there's kind of a uh, Judah goes back and forth between uh, being a, a willing vassal and paying tribute and then saying, okay, we can't take this anymore and withholding tribute and then paying tribute and, and so on. And, and uh, that's part of why uh, the Assyrians aren't coming down and destroying them to begin with, is that at least at times they are uh, willingly submitting.
1: I think that that's exactly right. And we'll see that momentarily when we talk specifically about King Hezekiah, who comes to the throne roughly 716 B.C., uh, but I wanted to I wanted to set the stage for the reign of Hezekiah by uh, looking at a passage in 2 Chronicles, chapter twenty eight, which talks about uh, what happens to the southern kingdom under the leadership of Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, um, and uh, this uh, I'm beginning with uh, with verse sixteen. So we have uh, in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 16, quote, at that time, did King Ahaz send unto the kings of Assyria to help him? Because uh, they were uh, fighting with the Edomites. Uh, Verse 17, for again, the Edomites had come and smitten Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, and carried away captives. What's interesting is that uh, as Latter-day Saints, we excuse me, tend to focus on uh, the, the last deportation um, in 586 with the Babylonians, but there were several deportations yeah. that had occurred long before that. And so uh, the, the Edomites had come and smitten the southern kingdom and carried away captives. Uh, to make matters worse, verse 18, the Philistines also invaded the cities of the low country and of the south of Judah and had taken Beit Shemesh and Ayelon and Gedarot and Shoho with the villages thereof and Timnah with the villages thereof, Gimzo also and the villages thereof, and they dwelt there. And this is you know better than anybody, and I mean that sincerely, having taken field trips to the low country, the low hills between the coastal plains and the mountains of Judea, uh, the area called the Shephelah, this is exactly um, where the Philistines have attacked. Uh, It's sort of the natural choke point between the Philistines who are living on the coast and the kingdom of Judah living in the the mountains.
0: Uh, And this is the area that they were fighting over in Saul's day is exactly these areas shoko is where uh the the philistines were camped during the story of david and goliath well right exactly. by shoko and yeah. uh and then david has taken this area over but now as they're weakening the philistines are taking it back and and the scary thing is shoko is really just a couple of stones throw distance from bethlehem which is just a couple of stones throw distance from uh, jerusalem so jerusalem. They're, they're actually getting pretty close
1: yeah and uh And as long as you're throwing stones, it's just a (laughs) stone's throws distance from Lachish, which is the second most important city in the southern kingdom of Judah, which we'll return to momentarily. So now we start to introduce some specific names that we've already talked about. Verse 20, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came unto him and distressed him, did not strengthen him or help him, but distressed him. For Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the house of the king and of the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria. But the king of Assyria helped him not. It's precisely the principle that you were talking about. You know, If we can, if we can keep these uh, semi-conquered peoples on the string and continue to receive tribute from them, then that's much better than going in and laying waste to them. They're filling our coffers. Yeah. And that's what's happening here. Well, uh, as an example of King Ahaz's um, misplaced confidence and misplaced uh, religiosity, verse uh, 23, uh, verse, starting uh, verse 22, and in the time of his distress, did he trespass yet more against the Lord? That is that King Ahaz. And so uh, Ahaz, um, like many people today, look for uh, different sources of relief and ignore the only true and living source of relief in so many ways, and that's the Lord. We're talking about uh, Jehovah here, who is none other than the pre-mortal Jesus Christ. I find that that's a, a very uh, what helpful model for us to understand. That this is an age-old problem that goes back thousands and thousands of years. People always look to a source uh, other than the true source that could be their true help. Uh. And, uh, and that's what Ahaz does. Verse 23, for he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, therefore will I sacrifice to them that they may help me but they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And so we turn to these alternate sources. And in fact, when we could have turned to the Lord for help, yeah, and, and, and I don't one, need to oh. sound preachy here, it's it's a lesson of history that's embedded in the text.
0: Uh, absolutely. And I think this one is so applicable to our day that that basically he looked and he said, so during what, what we've talked about on this podcast before, just very briefly, but the for ephraimite war where the, the Syrians and the uh, Israelites are trying to force Judah to join them, uh, and and the Syrians have success against Judah. And uh, and so they the way Ahaz is looking at it is, oh, according to the world's definition of success, the Syrians are doing well, so I'm going to do things the way the Syrians do them, rather than thinking of God's definition of success and turning to God. And I think we do that a lot today, where we say, oh, look, these people do things this way, and it works out well for them. According to the way the world defines, works out well, yeah. um, and so I'm going to do that. And we're so taken in by the ideas of the world that way that we're willing to abandon what prophets are teaching us because the the world seems so persuasive.
1: Yeah, it's uh, I I think you can't emphasize the point uh, too strongly that uh, that success is measured differently uh, by yeah. the Lord and by His prophets and. Uh, And that's, I think, what we see going on, as you uh, so well articulate. So Ahaz then uh, starts um, plundering the house of the Lord. He uh, gathers together the vessels, uh, all of the accoutrements that are used in worship in the temple. He cuts in pieces the vessels of the house of the Lord. He shuts the doors of the house of the Lord. That is to say, he closes the temple and uh, makes false altars in every corner of Jerusalem and in every uh, and in ev- uh, every several city of Judah he made high places uh, to burn incense and so this is this is the condition that the southern kingdom of Judah is left in when this new king comes to the throne king Hezekiah uh, I uh, I find it uh, uh, heartening, if you will, to see that, uh, that the Lord is continually concerned about his people, Israel, because of the covenant. And so uh, he, I think, is involved in the management of the details of the successors and uh, King Hezekiah. He is preserved, I think, in righteousness and ascends to the throne when he's only 25 years of age uh, in 716 BC. And the text says that he rules 29 years in Jerusalem. And it gives us the name of his mother so that we understand exactly which Hezekiah uh, we're talking about, the the, uh, Abiah, who is the daughter of Zechariah so the stage then is set for uh king hezekiah and
0: uh you know andy could i just interrupt you for a second it's just occurred to me that we're we're drawing from chronicles and getting some great extra information there and i'm not sure that uh most of the audience will understand uh what chronicles is and how it differs from first and second kings uh could you give us? A, we don't want to get too distracted from moving on with Hezekiah, but uh, would you be able to just explain it in a couple of minutes for us, or well, less?
1: Uh, K- Chronicles is is another historical account of the events that are reported in First and Second Kings. And obviously, uh, they, whoever the chronicler is, I'm not sure, maybe you know, (laughs) uh, and it could be uh, a group of individuals that are interested in using these other sources. And so that's what Chronicles is, is that it literally is using the different chronicles, the historical records that were uh, available to the author of first and second authors of first and second kings. And it's an it's an alternate source, and it is it it is different in its perspective. Um, we, we note, particularly with these episodes involving King Hezekiah, that the chronicler is interested in highlighting almost exclusively uh, the works and and the um, religious um, the righteousness of Hezekiah. And his reforms because he provides a very detailed account of the very first thing that hezekiah does which is restore the purity to the to the jerusalem temple we we, we get a very small snippet in uh, the second kings chapter 18 about the reforms of hezekiah but chronicles is interested in in the details because I think he wants to make an, a certain impression on his readers, whereas Keynes has other things in mind. Yeah,
0: yeah, and the chroniclers are, are single or plural, I don't know, but anyway, they uh, he or they I'll, I'll keep saying they, but I don't know. Uh, they seem to have even more of a, a religious uh, lesson agenda, a little even almost uh, like Mormon, they don't quite use the phrase and thus we see but they're implying the phrase and thus we see quite often I, I think yeah
1: so yeah they that's i think that's exactly right uh okay. and so uh what's what's interesting is that uh, if you if you use uh the record in second kings chapter 18 uh you get a little more detail on certain things than in, in chronicles but the but the real gem here and Chapter 29 is a detailed account of how King Hezekiah reforms uh, the religious rites, uh, the priesthood, uh, the sanctity of the temple, so that it he's trying to make the temple and the priesthood, the righteous priesthood, uh, the center of the civilization, uh, rather than just, you know, an afterthought. Uh, I uh, I do... I do like uh, the way that uh, 2 Kings chapter 18 introduces um, Hezekiah. So I'm just going to read um, from 2 Kings chapter 18, uh, verses 3, 4, and 5, because it says it a little a little better, in, in my humble opinion, than uh, Chronicles, verse 3 of 2 Kings 18. Uh, and he Hezekiah, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David, his father did. He removed the high places and brake the images, and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made for unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan, and he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. And then here's the tagline. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. He smote the Philistines that uh, had given his father Ahaz troubles and he uh, actually smote them to the borders uh, of Gaza and Gaza of course is in the south uh, western part of the holy Land, southwestern part of the modern state of, of Israel as we know. So that's we're introduced, I think in a in a more succinct, uh, more pointed way uh, that allows us to see just how righteous, um king hezekiah is but in second chronicles 29 the very first thing that we're told about is the cleansing of the temple the restoration of the rites uh and uh and and, and maybe how, i'll just
0: emphasize when uh when we're saying rites here like the religious
1: rites or the rites that it's r-i-t-e that, right. that you're referring to right? rituals yeah yeah rituals are ceremonies yeah. yeah and uh and I, I, I really love uh, the idea presented to us in Chronicles that what King Hezekiah does is he reaches out to um, people who, who who maybe have not um, have have not as intensely joined themselves to to the temple rituals and ceremonies and the and the righteous uh, things that happen when. We attend the temple, and he reaches out to them and says, the temple is restored. Come and you know and participate uh, with us, even though you might even be uh, a remnant of the northern kingdom. Come, come and be with us in the temple. And then he, another reform that he institutes is uh, he revamps Passover and uh, makes it more in line with what the Lord originally revealed in the time of Moses so that um, it um, it really becomes um, another center of gravity for the for the religion of the southern kingdom. So that that's kind of what Second Chronicles uh, does for us is it it really uh, focuses our attention on what King Hezekiah did that the Lord loved so much about Hezekiah. He he instituted uh he, he reinstituted uh the temple as the center of life he uh took away all of the uh what would you call them uh he he removed all of the uh the religious uh, not religious what am i trying to say he re- he removed um uh, the, the all idolatrous of the, or uh, yeah he he removed all of the idolatrous elements uh of of what ahaz had instituted and, uh, and solidifies that by offering uh, sin offering for all of the people, acknowledging to God and to the people of the southern kingdom as well that they have done wrong. And, uh, and then um, after you offer the sin offering according to the Mosaic law, then you're in a, uh, a, a state of grace, if you will to commit to follow God more fully uh, by uh, offering the burnt offering, and then you I- invoke a communion w- with the Lord, between the Lord, the priests, and the worshipers uh, with the fellowship offering. And so all of these things are done by Hezekiah to put society back on a religious footing, on the only firm footing that, that uh, could possibly save This group of people from the dreaded uh, Assyrians.
0: Uh, That's so, such fantastic stuff. And maybe just with our kind of emphasis on making things real, maybe I'll just add a couple little elements that you find uh, Hezekiah having to deal with. He's got a lot going on in his reign. So, as you said, he's one of the things he's dealing with is a, a legacy his father has left him of having chosen to trust in the world and and thus becoming idolatrous and corrupting the religious worship in Jerusalem. Um, And then he has this legacy of the Northern kingdom where they are being destroyed and, and destroyed and and taken away both in his father's reign and in his reign. And what we can tell archeologically, especially in Jerusalem is that there's a huge influx of refugees from the Northern kingdom. So that during uh, Hezekiah's reign, uh, and maybe this is where you were going to go. And uh, if so, then, stop me but um he he has to uh deal with uh enough refugees that it it, it, he has more northern kingdom people in his city than southern kingdom people um and in the midst of that he's trying to figure out what to do about assyria and as as we read he's going to rebel against assyria but but initially he turns to egypt for help and that makes sense you have to think okay what what if i'm going to do this what's the best way to do it but the prophet uh, Isaiah tells him not to rely on Egypt. And so instead, he, he and I, I don't know, he may have been going through these uh, reforms already. It seems like he may have, but it, it seems that that renews his emphasis on turning to God. And uh, that's when you get uh, wonderful phrases like um, if we're still in Second Chronicles 29, if we look at verse 10, yeah. and he says, now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us, right? That's that's his intent is to turn to God and the covenant with God for help rather than Egypt, which is what he was doing initially.
1: I think that that's an important point. And actually where I was going with this is, um, as you mentioned, um, be, I think because there are certain people, even remnants, uh, after the conquest of the Assyrians in 522, 521, but even a lot before that, that see that uh, Hezekiah is turning things around. And uh, and by turning them around, they're going to have Jehovah's protection. And you have, as you say, this huge influx from uh, the northern kingdom. And ultimately, uh, a point of interest to the Latter-day Saints is that this influx of northern uh, northern Israelites, I think is responsible for bringing uh, a certain family uh, to the area of Jerusalem that we know of as Lehi. Yeah. Uh, in the Book of Mormon, uh, we, we know from Alma chapter 10 that uh, Lehi learns uh, by looking at the records that are available to him that uh, he is a descendant of Manasseh. So you have Ephraim and Manasseh uh, in the north. And when the conquest of the Assyrians is completed, you have many of those, uh, you know, leaving, uh, being deported and putting in foreign uh, lands. Uh, But the the family of Lehi, the predecessors of Lehi and his family have already come down to Jerusalem. So this is Alma chapter 10, verse three. And, And Amminadi was a descendant of Nephi, who was the son of Lehi, who came out of the land of Jerusalem, who was a descendant of Manasseh, who was the son of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt by the hand of his brethren. So what we learned there, I I think, is that uh, even though Lehi is a descendant of Manasseh, which is in the northern a kingdom, at some point they migrate to the southern kingdom, probably even to be close to the temple, because we know that Lehi is a pretty righteous fellow, yeah. and uh, and that then sets up the, the marriage, if you will, between the Manassehites, Lehi and his family, and another group of people uh, 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 under the leadership of uh, Ishmael. Uh, and uh, and the Ephraimites. So the Manassehites and the Ephraimites come together in the posterity of Lehi. Yeah, it's powerful
0: stuff. And, and I think you're right. I mean, there are a number of migrations, but this is the largest one. And it's the latest time that Lehi's family really could have migrated down there. So yeah. it's, it's quite likely. And, and it highlights a little bit something you were talking about uh, earlier that um, any anyone coming from the north, there were some people there who were... Uh, uh dedicated to Jehovah, the the problem is the majority were worshiping Jehovah and lots of other gods. That's why they're being scattered. It's hard to know how many of them understood that what was going on at Bethel and Dan wasn't correct. I think even the most devout of people may not have fully understood that because we've had generations where that's the only way it's happening. Yeah. And Hezekiah has these groups of people who are coming to the south. I'm assuming that many of them are coming down to into Judah because they want to remain covenant people and, right. and keep practice rituals and worship Jehovah. But he's got this task of saying, OK, we need to teach them about the true temple, because those were false temples that had right. everyone in the north were, were patronizing. Uh, and we need to teach them about the true temple and get them to do uh, Jer, Jeroboam had changed religious calendars, uh, what the Levites, who they were, they got rid of Levites, but who was administering these things and how they did it. And so those people for generations have not done things the right way. And Hezekiah has a pretty big task on his hands of getting everyone to do it the right way. But he seems to be pretty successful at making that happen.
1: And and I think his success is grounded in the fact that he worships, truly worships the true and living God, Jehovah. Yeah. And And he he listens
0: to the prophet
1: he knows uh, who, who who God is. Yeah. He understands a lot about God. And you're right. He listens to the prophet who is none other than Isaiah. And Isaiah becomes, as it were, a court counselor yeah. uh, to the king. And you can hardly do better than have as uh, your main uh, counselor in in the workings of government than the true and living prophet. And Isaiah's Stature as a prophet is beyond question; it's beyond doubt. Yeah. And there's something about Isaiah that kind of ties into a point we haven't made yet, and that is, uh, Isaiah is a city prophet, probably born and raised in Jerusalem, but he's a very literate man. Yeah, you know, he's sort of the PhD of of. I I shouldn't have even used that imagery, but he's the. He is uh, the prophet that uses the most vocabulary words of any of the prophets yeah. in the Old Testament. Uh, he, he uses these images and I think is kind of in love with the, with the language and the way to describe these that sometimes it makes Isaiah a little bit difficult to understand, but be, it's because of, of uh, the culture that he's raised in. And that goes back to something we learned about Hezekiah, during his reign, uh, Hezekiah uh, actually uh, had um, copies of uh, King Solomon's Proverbs. uh, What brought in uh, uh, integrated into uh, the literary culture of Jerusalem at that time. Um, Proverbs chapter twenty-five. Verse 1, uh, I think, is one that we sometimes overlook. Quote, these are also proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. So he's got, uh, you know, he's got this, um, what, this court culture, the, the the court of the king. The culture is a very literary one, and he has people specifically designated to search religious records and particularly look at the proverbs of solomon make them part of the culture of the southern kingdom during his yeah. day and it's and it's that same culture that the prophet isaiah is part of
0: yeah beautiful stuff
1: yeah very 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 interesting so um we we now turn our attention i i'm going to go back to 2 second kings now if you don't mind yeah. um i think for time's sake more than anything else we go back to then uh, the, uh, the continuing nemesis of the Israelites, excuse me, the, the Judahites, the southern kingdom, uh, the Assyrians. And so we've already read in Second Kings chapter 18 how Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria, uh, does, is, not, um, is not serving him. Um I, I think what he, he what it's really telling us is that um they're not they're not supplying uh money, they're not they're not supplying um the, the kind of uh the term has just lost me. A uh, um uh, uh, tribute. Yeah. They're not they're not giving tribute to the the kings of Assyria. And so it is then that uh the the king of Assyria. Uh, in the 14th year of the reign of King Hezekiah uh, comes up against all the fenced or walled cities of Judah. This is 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. So in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the son of Sargon II, comes up uh, against all the fenced cities of Judah. Strategically, I think that uh, they do what any of us would do if we were the supreme commander, and that is they attack the weakest cities in Judah first. So of the 46 uh, walled or fenced cities in Judah, we uh, we see them sort of the Assyrians gobbling up uh, these cities, destroying them, laying them waste because they they um reserve the last two cities, the greatest of the cities of Judah, for last. They know that they're going to be harder to take, and they need all of their energies, all of their um, their military might focused on Plus the, the fear that they've uh,
0: engendered by oh, that yeah. point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The fear. So uh, the king of Assyria apparently is camped uh, against Lachish, which we have said is at this time, the second most important city in Judah. Uh, if you conquer Lachish, then you have essentially cleared the way to head to um, mm-hmm. Jerusalem. But you have also um, effectively established a barrier against the incursions of the Egyptians in the south. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is the, the smartest thing to do tactically. And uh, we read in uh, in uh, the following verses, uh, 14, um, 15, uh, Hezekiah uh, trying to fend off or trying to ward off an attack against Jerusalem. Uh, He he pays the king of Assyria a bunch of talent, a bunch of uh, tribute money, and we can read about uh, the amount of gold and silver that Hezekiah uh, takes from the actual temple and the treasures of the of the palace and gives them to the king hoping i think that this will stave off the ultimate confrontation and it does not verse 17 we find the king of assyria sending uh, his trusted messengers uh, to king hezekiah in jerusalem from lachish where they are overpowering um the Judahites uh, and uh, members of society living there uh, in preparation for taking Jerusalem. Uh, Interesting to me is that we have um, remnants of the old language of of politics, uh, the old language of diplomacy revealed in verse 17 with these various titles that are used. The king of Assyria in verse 17 uh, Sent uh, Tartan and Rav Saris and Rav Shake. Uh Those are Aramaic terms, yes, but they actually go back to original Akkadian uh, terms. Akkadian was a Semitic language that was used uh, around the time of, of Father Abraham and even later than that. And it was the language of diplomacy between um, the Great Empire of the Acadians in Mesopotamia, and all of the other uh, city states that were under the control of uh, of the Akkadian Empire and so we uh, maybe not so important uh, religiously not but still interesting that we we find vestiges of historical accounts embedded in uh, the narrative of Second Kings, which to me says this: this is a genuine document. Uh, this is a this this, this is not uh, this is not made up by the author of Second Kings, whoever it is, because we do find vestiges of of uh, earlier historical accounts in there. Uh, so, where what does Hezekiah do? the The king of Assyria is not in jerusalem personally but he sends his trusted messengers and likewise uh, king hezekiah uh, sends his trusted um, messengers the the um, palace manager if you will and uh, and we find then that uh, the those that are sent from the king of assyria try to intimidate um Uh, the Judahites that are living in Jerusalem with uh, with taunting words saying, how can you possibly believe that your God uh, can protect you from Assyrian might? Uh, If you look at uh, the other places that we've conquered, uh, you find that none of the gods of the peoples that lived in those other places was able to do anything for them. And uh, and so you're placing your trust uh, falsely. Uh, why don't you just give up, and uh, and this will become a bloodless conquest, uh, so to speak.
0: And I find it really interesting that uh, Hezekiah has already said, "I will pay you tribute," and and he's paid them some, and and uh, and give up and be your vassal. So there's already a chance for this to be bloodless, but but they're not okay. They, they don't accept that, but then they come up and they try and make it so that everybody gives up. And the only thing I can think of, and I, I mean, I'm just trying to read their minds, but the only thing I can think of is that as part of their scare tactics for everyone else is that they have to make sure that Hezekiah doesn't remain king. He has to be deposed uh, and that will discourage other kings in other places from rebelling against them if uh, no matter what you depose the king. And so I think he's there to try and scare everyone in Jerusalem so that they will give up and turn Hezekiah over to them rather than just accept Hezekiah's tribute and let Hezekiah continue as their vassal. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. I don't know if that's really what's happening, but it seems it makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, I I don't know either, but I think that that's a a pretty good proposal. Uh, One thing we do know is that uh, those that represent King Hezekiah ask those that represent uh, the Assyrian king to speak to them in Aramaic because the general populace of Jerusalem understands Hebrew, but they don't understand Aramaic. And we want to keep this on the down low. Uh, We we don't want to scare the daylights, you know, out of the citizens of Jerusalem. So just tell us, you know, what's going on. And of course, uh, Rav Shakeh and his Uh, embassy, if you will, from the king of Assyria says, no, we want to talk to everybody. And that's exactly what I think they have in mind is what you just said is, you know, if we can get the general populace to revolt and to go with our plan, then uh, Hezekiah, the main roadblock to our plan is deposed and he's out of the way. Yeah. So I think think that that's um, in support of your particular view. And so what does Hezekiah do uh, when he receives a word that this is what's happening? It's interesting to me uh, that, uh, that two things happen. So one, uh, he, uh, he prays. Uh, number two, um, he uh, goes to the temple. And number three, he relies on the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. And, uh, and to cut to the chase, basically what um, Isaiah says is, uh, do not fear. Uh, because of your righteousness and the righteousness of the people at this time, uh, these um, Assyrian uh, armies will not cast up a bank. Uh, they, will n- uh, they will not, um, you know, uh, uh, put up these these walls uh, to bring their siege engines up like we have done in Lachish. Uh, They will not cast an arrow against the city, but but will be sent home uh, without uh, any harm done to Jerusalem or to the Holy Temple. And the most famous part of the story uh, is um, actually uh, found in second Kings chapter nineteen. Uh, and I think um, I think rather than than uh, read uh, all of nineteen because uh, our listeners can can do that for themselves, but there's some very graphic language that that uh, is employed by the Lord to uh, to show that uh, he's really in charge and that he can do uh, you know powerful things against these Syrians. Um, is um, verse 32, uh, verse 31, actually, for out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this, meaning he's going to preserve a remnant of his people at this time. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank, um, a siege wall against it. By the way that he came, by that same shall he return and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, it's interesting to me. That uh, David figures so prominently uh, in uh, this the account in 2 Kings. One assumes that uh, the account is written by uh, those who uh, are favorable towards the house of David, towards David's descendants. Uh, They continue to paint him in a favorable light, even after David... Uh, Lost the trust of the Lord uh, through his idol or or through his adulterous uh, actions. David is still being as the model king. Yeah, and and so that I think must tell us something about the um, predisposition of the writers of this of this account uh, that they're very favorably disposed towards uh, King David.
0: I would agree. And I I think also, I mean, David at least did not uh, promote the worship of other gods, which uh, is important. But you're right. I mean, these are people who work
1: for descendants of David. Yeah, exactly. So what happens? Um, Verse 35, and it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred four score and 5,000, 185,000 warriors are smitten. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. And the wording is kind of funny. It yeah. says when they arose early in the morning, who, the dead people? or yeah, They woke
0: up and people? saw they were dead.
1: Yeah, they woke yeah. up and, hey, we're, we're dead. So the Lord <laughs> well, has- But it
0: may be someone else is waking up and seeing that yeah, they're exactly, dead. Yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And uh, of course, this is where we see the historical records collapsed in terms of time past, because it is in 681 then that uh, that verse 37 is fulfilled, comes to pass that when um, Sennacherib is worshiping in the house of his God, this rock, that his two sons sneak in and they slay him and they escape to the land of Armenia, and Asaradon, his other son, reigns in his stead. So he's murdered in Nineveh in 681 BC. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, the, the great panels, the great carvings that depict the Assyrian king's great conquest of Lachish are in this very palace yeah. in Nineveh. And so he's he's surrounded for years because this is this is 705 um, when when he unleashes his attack against uh, the southern kingdom of judah and this and then fast forward to 681 where this same uh, Nep, uh, Sennacherib is praying in in the palace that has all of these these murals these carvings that depict the great conquest of the Assyrians uh, over uh, the Judahites in, in yeah. Lachish. And he's murdered by his own people. Uh, and, and in fact, not his own people, but his, his uh, two sons. And so that ends the Assyrian threat, the Assyrian threat, uh, at least uh, for a time. Uh, well, actually really ends it permanently because the next group of people that that take over are the babylonians and yeah. it's uh lachish that's destroyed all over again and it's jerusalem then that is attacked all over again but that time the 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 uh, southern kingdom is not so fortunate it's their final demise in 586 bc uh two 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 things that i wanted to cover that i didn't Uh, Not only did Hezekiah make spiritual preparations against the Assyrian attack by going to the temple, by going to the prophet, but he also makes some physical preparations. And the two most prominent ones, I think, at least uh, from an archaeological point of view, are the strengthening of the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, partly to strengthen the city of Jerusalem against the Assyrian attack, but also partly, I think, to to uh, strengthen the walls of the city because it's busting at the seams with with all of the influx of these people that that we have talked about. So uh, one of the most dramatic things that um, that tourists like to look at and take pictures of when they go to Jerusalem is the remnants of the broad wall uh, that is uh, been uncovered and left uncovered in the uh, in the Jewish quarter of the old city and that broad wall is an amazing um, piece of architecture because of its hugeness it's just a huge wall and we see only a portion of it Uh, and one of the the interesting things to me is that we see vestiges of houses that were destroyed when the broad wall was uh, was built right through them. Yeah, and and this is reflected in uh, Isaiah chapter twenty two, uh, verses nine and ten. Very very quickly read those. Uh, Isaiah says, "Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David, that they are many, and ye have gathered together the waters of the lower pool." Ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses ye have broken down to fortify the wall. And this is exactly what you see in the, in the archaeological record is you see the broad wall that's been constructed right in the middle of several of these houses uh, yeah. on either side of the broad wall and then the the the, the
0: wall seems to have been built both uh to strengthen uh the walls they already had but also because they have all these new people that are building in new parts and there's no wall around that area and and so on so i mean he has a lot he has to do now that he has this larger city with all these refugees to try and protect and and prepare for the assyrian invasion
1: uh maybe even more dramatic I, i don't think more important And then the broad wall is the the new tunnel that's created to bring the waters of the Gihon Spring into the actual city so that, number one, the Assyrians don't find a ready-made water source that they could control. And number two, so that uh, the water supply for the city is made safe for all the inhabitants inside the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, this... uh, This again, I'm going back to 2nd Chronicles chapter 32 uh, and just want to read a couple of verses. So we're in 2nd Chronicles 32 after the quote, after these things, the establishment thereof, Sennacherib king of Assyria came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities. These are the 46 walled cities, according to the Assyrian royal records themselves. And so Sennacherib uh, camps against these fenced cities. He destroys them and takes them for himself as part of the empire. Verse 2, when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was proposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains, which were without the city, and they did help him. So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land saying why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water skipping over to verse 30 and this same Hezekiah also stopped the upper water course of the Gihon Uh, it's a spring it's the most permanent well-established water source in ancient Jerusalem Gihon comes from a root means to gush because that's the way the spring operates it gushes up at certain times of the day and so they stop up the waters of the Gihon, they bring it straight down to the west side of the city, and Hezekiah prospered in all his work. This, makes, this is reference to Hezekiah's tunnel, which many, many tourists have walked through. Uh, and the way that it happened, as, as you could probably describe better, is that apparently there was a natural fissure in the bedrock on top of which the city of Jerusalem was built. And, uh, and two crews of workmen start at opposite ends of this natural fissure uh, in the bedrock, and they start chipping away, and they meet in the middle, not, not exactly the middle, but they meet together uh, under, um, you know, 100 meters of bedrock yeah. uh, to allow the waters of the Gihon to flow through this tunnel, which ends up uh, in this, uh, in the, the, the pool uh, that uh, that we all uh, love to, to visit. And even the Savior um, performed part of his ministry at the Siloam Pool yeah. or the Shiloak Pool. Shiloak in Hebrew means sent. So the waters are sent from the Gihon to uh, the Siloam Pool, and that provides the water source. Very, very dramatic inscription found uh, in the middle of the tunnel an inscription found in the year 1880, which tells us that the Hezekiah's tunnel was about 1,800 feet long, 1,750, and the inscription describes what we've just said. Uh, Teams of workers starting at uh, each end of this natural fissure and then meeting uh, somewhere in the middle. And they kind of Uh, hear
0: each other and then
1: yeah. They the pickaxe goes through and the water gushes. And the cool thing is you can actually see the chisel marks yeah. <clears throat> that, uh, and you can see where, where they met. Uh, I will, I will try. And I, I, uh, I once
0: ran that as fast as I could, and it's not easy to run bent over and, and through water, but I did it with a GoPro on uh, I'll try and post that as a, a YouTube video that people could watch uh, if I oh, can yeah. find that, that video.
1: That would be I thought wonderful. I, and there are, myriads of photographs uh, on the internet to help uh, our listeners understand the nature of this you can make all the preparations in the world that you want but the real source uh of your of your strength the real source of your salvation if you will uh your redemption from uh difficulties from life's challenges is uh, the word himself and that's the point that it's made there down uh, the houses, but the very next verse, verse 11, he
0: also made a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool, right? So it's talking about exactly what we're talking about, but the next phrase, but you've not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. And so I think this is part of that time when Hezekiah was, was looking towards Egypt, looking towards all the things he could do to prepare for the invasion. And of course we should do the things that we should do, but, but this is when Isaiah reminds him, there's a place that needs greater focus. And to Hezekiah's credit, he responds. Exactly.
1: That's that's an important point to make, is that the story is introduced with this very cryptic phrase, in those days. Yeah. Well, what days are we talking about? The same days as the Assyrian onslaught or the, the, the days before the Assyrian onslaught, the preparation. Anyway, um, in those days, Hezekiah was sick unto death. <clears throat> And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Uh, Verse 1 gives good advice to all of us. We should constantly have our houses set in order. We should uh, be able to say, I'm ready to meet my maker, no matter uh, what the the external circumstances are, because we never know Uh, in that very hour. We may be called upon uh, to return home to the God that gave us life. Verse two, then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, Uh, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember how I have walked before thee. And Hezekiah wept sore. And interestingly enough, before Isaiah leaves the middle court of the palace, that the Lord inspires Isaiah to go back and tell Hezekiah that the Lord has heard his prayer. He's seen his tears and he will heal Hezekiah. And, uh, and thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord. It's interesting that the temple is the place that Hezekiah is directed to so that he can think about what has just happened. And how the temples should always serve as the foundation of his life, as it should serve as the foundation of our lives. And uh, the Lord says, I'm going to add 15 years uh, to your lives and uh, deliver thee out of the hand of the king of Assyria. So if, in fact, this sickness happens while the Assyrian threat is looming large, it helps us to appreciate that there have been people in times past who have faced a lot of challenges. And sometimes those challenges have been compounded in their lives. And and when we face similar challenges where it may seem like things pile on top of one another and we're faced with several different kinds of challenges through no fault of our own, that others have gotten through this and they've gotten through this from the help of prophets, from the help of prayer, and from the help of attending the temple. And that's a lesson that I take from uh, the the last scene, as it were, the last episode of of Hezekiah's life. And of course, some people have questioned, some people have questioned uh, if Hezekiah was so righteous, then why does he ask the Lord's prophet for a sign? And and I don't find this uh, as Hezekiah's um, what going back on his righteous ways. He's simply trying to see if he's understood what Isaiah said correctly. That he's not misunderstood. Yeah. And so the Lord and signs says well, are just so
0: much more common in in their culture. We see it all yeah. throughout the Old Testament.
1: Yeah. Just if I can if I can if the Lord can show me a sign, then I'll know exactly what i was supposed to hear from the prophet isaiah
0: yeah, yeah.
1: <clears throat> for and, and and that's i don't think that that's a big deal and so uh, the lord fulfills his promise uh towards the end of his life i suppose uh towards the end of his reign or or, or not the king of babylon the son of the king of babylon has heard of isaiah's uh, near-death experience and he sends a letter and presents to Uh, Hezekiah because he's heard of this he's a I think this is the diplomatic thing to do particularly if you're trying to strengthen two or three different kingdoms against the Assyrians the son of the king of Babylon comes presents Hezekiah with a letter and gifts Hezekiah then shows him all the precious things that are in Jerusalem and not just precious things but uh, things, uh, strategic things that could help the Jerusalemites defend against another conqueror. And this was extremely unwise. I don't think it's a sin. <clears throat> it may have been motivated by a sin, a sin of pride. We don't know for sure what possessed Hezekiah to show uh, this uh, this foreign ruler, uh, the strength, of the Southern Kingdom, but nevertheless he did, and so the last thing we read about is that uh, Isaiah tells Hezekiah, uh, because of this act, uh, your your descendants are going to face a time where there will be they will be attacked by Babylon and carried away captive, and, uh, and this is an Isianic prophecy of the Babylonian captivity later on at five eighty six, but maybe. The message is, um, be wise in the things that we talk about. Uh, Hezekiah had experienced some very spiritual things, some very personal things. Was it out of pride that he showed the son of the king of Babylon, the great strength that Hezekiah had accumulated? Because after all, we're told at least twice in the text of Kings that the Lord prospered him in everything that he did. So be wise in our communications. Uh, don't don't uh, become a spiritual blabbermouth. Don't, don't allow your spiritual strengths to become your weaknesses. Uh, don't say too much about spiritual things in, in our lives, but to rather keep close company with the Lord. And he'll tell us, he'll, he'll give us a nudge as to when we should say things and when we should not. And uh, maybe this is the, the greatest uh, mistake of Hezekiah's life is that he does this, and it results um, ultimately in the deportation of the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, some hundred years plus uh, afterwards, I'm grateful for the the life of King Hezekiah because it shows us how it shows me how I I can live my life relying upon prayer, prophets, and the temple, the sanctity of the temple. And I hope I'll be wise enough to to always remember that when uh, great challenges beset me. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. And thank you so much,
0: Andy. That's just uplifting and wonderful. And uh, I think we're all blessed by it. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much. It's a great privilege to be with you.